Um, all right, so circling back for another cutting room floor, sort of beginning uh, in this process of starting the book of Samuel, a couple weeks in now, leaning into this idea of the priesthood. Mm-hmm. Right, so we get this like really gnarly picture of the priesthood yeah. as it's practiced at Shiloh yeah. through Eli's sons. And you start to wonder like, was this what God intended? Yeah. What's going on totally. here? Totally, yeah. And this is really interesting because, again, when we're jumping into Samuel, obviously we're jumping into a middle of an ongoing story as far as the whole Old Testament is concerned. And really in particular, the character of the Levites and more specifically the priests, and you just mentioned Eli and his two sons, who we're looking at here in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and a little bit past that uh, in the book of 1 Samuel. But kind of just taking a bigger step back, just to kind of get you know our bearings as far as the priesthood and all of that with the Old Testament. I think it's just important to know that as we're talking about with the last conversation we had about the anointing, the anointed one, the king, Mashiach, Messiah, that sort of language there, that same language as far as anointing or Mashiach, or to be messiah if you will, to be anointed, that same language is also used for the priest. Hmm. And so when you go back into the Torah, into the book of Exodus, the first person to actually be anointed is not a king. It's the priest. It's Aaron himself. Hmm. Uh, so Exodus 28, 41, Exodus 30, 30, and there's a whole bunch of other passages. But Exodus 30, 30, you shall anoint Aaron and his sons. That word anoint is the verb for Mashiach or hmm. Messiah there. And so what's interesting is that you have Aaron, so the brother of Moses, is kind of the the beginning, the funnel, if you will, the start of the funnel of this priestly line that will kind of run throughout all of Israel's history throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, But one thing that's interesting is that you kind of pick hints up on this, and you've alluded to this with Eli and his sons, that there's actually kind of some, I don't know, something off with the priesthood, to say the least. Because yeah. you have more repeat, than off. more than off it's exactly, it's gnarly. really bad. Yeah. When the story that you know, by the time this conversation comes out, what we looked at <laughs> the Sunday pr- prior to what uh, Eli's sons were doing yeah. in the temple and so on, it's just bad, really bad. Yeah. But when you take a bigger step back, you actually see that this actually isn't like a one-off situation. Mm. What Eli and his sons are doing, and really looking back all the way from the very beginning of when the priesthood was established, mm. when you look back to when Aaron was called to kind of come alongside Moses, there's really kind of beginning some inklings or some questions as to like, is this really going to go well Hmm. for Israel or for, for the, for God's people? And what I mean is this, is that when you have Moses going all the way back to Exodus three at the burning bush, he's dialoguing back and forth with God. He's kind of, you know, Moses is giving his best excuses why he can't go to Pharaoh and, you know, confront him. And really as a concession, if you will, God says, okay, Aaron, your brother will speak for you. Hmm. And, you know, we know Aaron and his descendant, they become the line of priests. And so one way to look at how Aaron comes alongside Moses is that God is kind of meeting Moses halfway, if you will. And Aaron kind of enters into the story, the biblical story, as kind of a a concession, if you will. And Hmm. it's not totally overt. It's pretty subtle at this point. But when you get to see is that, sure, Aaron has his, you know, decent moments. He he says a few things here and there that are, are fine. But his, his kind of big moment, his big kind of story, if you will, his first major one is the golden calf story. Yeah. Moses and so, leaves, Moses, he's in charge. He's in charge, you right? You your moment, buddy. And he just totally blows it, right? He has that kind of, kind of ironic slash funny slash really sad line where he's like, well, the people gave me this gold and, you know, out came this calf as if, like, he had no <laughs> ability whatsoever. I put you know, in the fire and a calf It was came born. out like, how did yeah. that happen? And, you know, you're like... It's just really sad at that point. And that's Exodus 32 and in the the subsequent chapters. And there you really begin to see this blemish upon the first Mm. priest, Aaron, the first kind of, you know, head honcho, for lack of a better term. 
Then, as you go to the next book, Leviticus, you have this really awkward story that commentators have really a hard time dealing with what exactly Aaron's sons did wrong. Hmm. But Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, often it's translated in our English text, they had this thing with, quote, strange fire. And they do this unauthorized kind of fire, this strange fire before the Lord, this weird sort of, more than likely, some sort of unlawful sacrifice Hmm. in Leviticus chapter 10. These are, again, Aaron's sons. And what ends up happening is that the ground consumes them. Yeah, so Aaron's sons get eaten by the earth. Exactly. And it's like, it reminds me of that, the, La- the Return of the Jedi, that like monster oh, that yeah, was yeah, like yeah. eating yeah. Boba Fett or whatever, Fett, right? Yeah. So it's like, that's what I picture every time I read that story, which probably isn't at all accurate, but whatever. Which Boba Fett climbs out of. Yes, I did see the, the first, new, I saw I the first episode. I haven't <laughs> seen the second one, so don't, don't spoil that Sorry. one. <laughs> there you go. Um, but so here we actually already have this pattern of a father priest with two with two sons as priests really having this kind of black stain if you will so by the time we get to first samuel you have a father priest and two sons Mm. you're like i've seen this before Mm. and and i think this is very intentional how this is set up so you have eli who's the father and his two sons who are really wicked and they're the ones who yes eli has his faults for sure but it's primarily the judgment is really kind of landing on the two yeah. sons. Very similar to yeah. Leviticus 10 with Nadab and Abihu, the sons of yeah. Aaron. Now, Except when you, for in this one, or in the previous one, Aaron makes it through and his sons are eaten by the earth. Exactly, in this yes. one, all three of them. All three of them. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. And so you see that as the, the story in Samuel progresses, yes, you're right. All three of them, uh, really, they don't make it. Yeah. Um, but when you see in 1 Samuel chapter 2, which is what we just recently looked at, is that the, this unnamed man of God comes to Eli and kind of prophesies like not in a good way, at yeah. le- if you're Eli and his sons, <laughs> and has all this language of it was, you know, basically your family, your your house, kind of the language of your family. You're the one that God chose to, to be the priest. Mm-hmm. You're the one that was supposed to kind of set this whole thing up to walk before me, to, to honor me. Uh, to raise up the, these these people that would would honor and and practice and follow the Torah, yet Eli and your sons, you guys have basically totally blown it. And when you get to the end of this kind of you know prophecy that this unnamed man of God gives, he says, "I will raise up." God says, "I will raise up for myself a faithful priest to do according to what is in my heart and soul, and I I will build for him a faithful house, and it will walk before my anointed." Are all these days. And so what you have is that as Eli and his sons are kind of being essentially pushed to the side because of their evil and their wickedness, God is saying through this un- unnamed man of God in 1 Samuel 2 that there will be another faithful high priest, another priest that will honor, that will do what's right, that will be faithful to uh, what God has commanded. And now the question becomes, okay, so where does this lead us hmm. to? Like, where is this story going to? Yeah. And very similar to all the last conversation where we we're looking at this progressing and this looking forward to this anointed king, here it's the same idea looking forward to who will be this faithful mm. high priest, who will fulfill that role. Now, in the immediate sort of narrative of the story, there becomes a character that I think really does fulfill this. I think you you you'll, you'll, you you mentioned this, Zadok, mm-hmm. probably one of the coolest names, I think, yeah. in the Bible. Um, so you he becomes... You have three chances. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right? <laughs> so Zadok, he becomes the priest primarily under the time, under the reign of, of King David. <laughs> And for the most part, you know, to my to my understanding, there's not really anything all that negative about Zadok in the in the in the narrative. There's not a ton of detail at the same time as well. No. And so Zadok seems to be this one who is faithful. He's doing what's right. He's you know in line with everything that's happening with David and, and so on and so forth. 
But it's really interesting is that what I think is, is also happening, and people way smarter than me have pointed this out, is that you have these interesting stories with David and Saul in particular, where David seems to be not overtly, but kind of subtly within the text, seems to be doing a lot of priestly stuff himself. Mm. And it really raises some questions as to, okay, who is this priest? Who is mm. this one who will be this anointed, yes, king, but also this anointed priest that Israel is really mm. longing for, that really needs to stand in the gap, if yeah. you will. Well, Jesus even riffs on that, right? Like, yeah. Didn't David go in and eat the exactly, bread while yes. he's eating, right? So it, there's even continuity, continuity there. Continuity there, for yeah. sure. And so what's interesting is just kind of like a, a really brief kind of detour that will, I think, hopefully highlight what I'm about to say okay. towards the end. The detour is this. You have the story that really begins the decline of Saul when he offers this unlawful, quote, burnt offering. Hmm. And so he's there. He's It's 1 Samuel 13. He's supposed to be waiting for Samuel to come back. He's impatient. Mm -hmm. He offers this burnt offering. Samuel comes, does come back later, finds out about it. And Samuel's ticked. What have you done for Samuel 13, 11? And Samuel kind of goes off and riffs on how really now, Saul, because of your disobedience, your impatience, the kingdom is going to be taken from you. So... What got Saul in trouble, at least in this story, was offering pretending this... Pretending to be a priest. Pretending to be a priest, doing this burnt mm. offering. When you come to 2 Samuel chapter 6, so the next major book yeah. in, in our Bible, but really it's part of the Originally same story, one, book, yeah. one story, you have this story where the, where the Ark of God is brought back to the city of David, yeah. brought back to Jerusalem. And David's dancing, he's happy, he's excited. And you have these weird details, at least weird when I first read it, where we're told what David was wearing. He was wearing a, a linen ephod. Uh, he, David, offers a burnt offering and peace offerings. And David blesses the people. Three things. He's wearing a linen ephod. He's making wow. burnt offerings. And he blesses the people. Sounds very priestly. Very priestly. So kind of in reverse order, he blessed the people. That's a riffing back to number six, the priestly blessing from Aaron. Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. Uh, we'll skip the burnt offerings for a second right now, but he was wearing the first one, a linen mm. ephod, which you go back to Exodus 28, was part of the, the articles of clothing that Aaron and his sons were to wear as priests. And then back to that middle one that I just mentioned, David offers burnt offerings, the exact same thing that Saul yep. gets in trouble for. And the narrative, the narrator just kind of gives you this story. There's no really, co there's no consequence for David for doing this. Interesting. And the question is, okay, so how come this is like, you know, when you think about your kids, sometimes you give a consequence to one, but not the, the same mm -hmm. consequence. The other. I've done this as a parent before. And, you know, and maybe Sienna comes and says, why does Kaysen get that? And yeah. I don't. Right. And it's a little bit of like, why is Saul getting in trouble for this and not David? So does this get back to the horn? I think so. And so I think we're looking at, okay, there's this subtlety within the narrative. So what you just mentioned, the horn, we're going back to, I guess, in order of these conversations, the last episode yeah. that we talked about, there was this idea that the anointed one, David, was anointed, is the only one to be anointed with a horn in the book of Samuel. Mm -hmm. It seems like this weird detail, but I think it's this unique piece of the narrative that's yeah. highlighting or elevating David and not Saul and not uh, Absalom who, yeah. is, who follows David. Which also connects back to Hannah's prayer, which she yes. combines in chapter two, chapter verse two. 10. The idea of a king, a horn, a horn, and the anointed. Anointed one. They all are yeah. meant to go together. And so David, who yes, we've talked about, he will and does have plenty of flaws. But it, there's something very specific to David and the royal descendants that will come from his line that seem to now merge these roles of, yes, the king anointed one, but also the priest anointed mm. one. And we're seeing these two roles begin to merge together. Okay. And so when we think about this, 
you know, again, this is very subtle within the book of Samuel itself. That's kind of how narrative works. It's how narrative works. And it's meant to, you know, get you to think and to ponder and reread these things. And to really like, I mean, you get the kind of the the juice or the meat of this by really saturating yourself in these texts. And when you come kind of continuing on in the book of Samuel, there's a few more hints here and there where David's role is merging with the priests as a king and priest. Uh, but when you when you really see it on full display is with the person of Jesus, and I think this is how these mm. narratives are meant to kind he of becomes like a prototype almost. David, yeah, becomes like this like like this silhouette, if you will, that Jesus mm. perfectly fulfills. Because as we've talked about, David, both as king and as this ruler priest, will completely fall himself yeah and he will not live up to what god's ideal was for the priest and for the king david shapes our imagination Mm -hmm. to be able to accept and receive and see jesus exactly yes combining all of these elements yes priest prophet king anointed yes because i think what the narratives and especially like judges samuel kings what they're trying to one thing they're trying to do, one of the main things they're trying to do is give us this category of what Israel needs around here is someone mm. who can fulfill these roles collectively and together. Mm. And it kind of paints this portrait for Jesus where Jesus begins to do like a lot of his first miracles, especially early on in his ministry, are dealing with clean and unclean spirits or clean and unclean people that's Mm. very priestly language Mm. interacting with clean and unclean space Mm. and i think a lot of christians again rightly so understand that i get this idea of jesus as king ruler authority it makes sense We, we we understand that i think a neglected category and i think a really crucial aspect of the ministry of jesus is this kind of priestly role Mm. this mediator role this role that's bridging and overcoming the uncleanness and the shame Mm. and the ostracization that many of the first century people that were could be considered unclean jesus was bringing back bringing them back into community bringing them back into the family of god whether that was from a place of social stigma or just uncleanliness or whatever the case might have been it's this kind of priestly aspect of jesus that is bringing these people back in so maybe if i was to sort of do a quick summary of the last two covering floors like what we're seeing in judges and as samuel uh, first samuel second samuel first king second kings sort of emerge is this idea of man the priests and the kings around here, mm-hmm. we thought yeah. they were going to solve everything. Totally. And they're not. They're not, yeah. But they're also merging yes. some of these ideas. So in David in particular, you have someone who's anointed, who's elevated, mm-hmm. someone who's a king, but also is doing priestly duties. Yeah. And now you start to think, huh, these kind of work well together. Were- he fell, but <laughs> yeah. it sort of shapes our imagination totally. a little bit so that when the prophets start thinking of this Messiah, yes. when first century Israel is waiting for this mm-hmm. Messiah, they have categories. For sure. And it's helpful, when, you, especially when you get to the New Testament. It's not, and I'm thinking in particular the book of Hebrews, is that someone, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, is not just kind of out of thin air going, Jesus is our great high priest. He's read, <laughs> yeah. the, the writer of Hebrews has read his Old Testament and has seen these figures being merged together. And, you know, while maybe the Gospels, maybe like the Gospel of, you know, you know, Mark highlights the kingly nature to a certain extent of Jesus. Mm. Hebrews kind of fleshes out this priestly side mm. of Jesus as well, where we have this famous passage where we do not have a great high priest, Hebrews 4.14. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Like... Eli's son. Exactly, right? Who fell to temptation, who fell or to Aaron their weaknesses. Or exactly. 
but one who in every respect was tempted as we are yet without sin unlike Aaron unlike mm. Eli unlike all these priests from before now verse 16 let us hold with confidence and draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need the writer of the Hebrews is saying because of this priestly nature of Jesus mm. we have this confidence this expectation this boldness to come boldly before the throne of God and it reminds me again when we're kind of thinking about these conversations what I think really at least in my brain initially started a lot of this thinking for me was when you were talking about pouring your heart out mm. before God and so this priestly nature where you have on the one hand yes the kingly side we talked about that in the last conversation mm. there's this aspect of pouring yourself out before the king but Hebrews 4 with the priestly aspect of Jesus it's that same theme just with a different angle if you will mm. and so we come boldly to the throne of grace in light of this priestly mediator mm. coming to us in our Scroll. brokenness in our shame uh, pouring ourselves out before him uh, to find grace and mercy in our time of need. That's great. Yeah. Thanks, Aaron.